evening all. Uh, this is Kino Kingdom 64, and uh, we are joined as a special occasion by our good friend Laszlo Buckets, um, who has come to share his knowledge with us and out-sexy all of us as well. Um, later on, there's going to be a, a, a conversation about Kevin Conroy, sadly passed away, and also Albert Pian, uh found out through Laszlo, actually, that he that he, he died uh, earlier today. So a, a little nod to Albert later on. Um, but before that, there's a lot to get through. And I thought, uh, I don't know if you want to say hello, Laszlo, actually, just so people know what your voice sounds like, to differentiate it. Hello. <laughs> There's Laszlo. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't know if you remember, Rupert, a couple of weeks ago, we started off a Kino Kingdom bingo. Um, mm. And I, I know we have a lot of American listeners and this is going to go completely over their heads. So you might want to Wikipedia UK bingo slang to keep up with this. Um, but we've had a few responses and I'm just going to I'm just going to read them out. There's four so far. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to read out the ones we've had. So if you can imagine, I'm slowly turning a ball with lots of uh, numbered numbered orbs in and they're popping out and the first ball out is number two alan ruck and then give it a give it another spin and up comes martian nipples number three oh and another little another little spin here and <laughs> the nipples the next <laughs> the next ball is number four dudley moore and the final ball I'm just giving it a little twist here and that is the entrapment age gap 39 <laughs> so, so kino kingdom bingo kino kingo is uh, is off to a good start i think i think that's uh some of those courtesy of, of our regular max who uh, who sent those in so yeah i do like the entrapment age gap 39 you can probably well we all we all know that michael douglas is going to be mentioned on the number 28 now <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah, any more? Keep them coming in. The men who talk at Outlook.com. And we also had an email. Um, and this is an email from someone called Brian Difficult. Uh, and the title of his email was Practical Magic. <clears throat> and he said, hi, Rupert and Britt. I've been a big fan of the show since squatting behind a fridge. And that probably won't make sense to many people listening. But that's that was the subtitle to episode 38, <laughs> Squatting Behind a Fridge. Um, and thought the contacting you would be the perfect way to try and get the attention of the producers of the 1998 Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman movie, Practical Magic. I came to this conclusion because you once spoke to Tony Howes. I am obsessed with the film and assumed that it would instantly generate a sequel, but of course that wasn't to be the case. I have spent the last 24 years fine-tuning the lyrics to a song that I have written as a theme to the sequel, a sequel that I've always assumed would be titled Impractical Magic. The song I've written is therefore called Impractical and then magic is in brackets. <clears throat> um, and he says, I'm asking if you'd be so kind as to read out the lyrics in the hope that the film's original producers are listening and will purchase the lyrics from me and write music to accompany them and then make the film as well. So thank you ever so much. Brian with an I, difficult, not that one. The way he said Brian with an I, I mean, I'm looking at the word Brian. So I got that. That was fine. <laughs> <coughs> um so yeah, obviously there's uh, there's no music to this, so I'm just going to read out the lyrics to this imaginary sequel to the 1998 film Practical Magic. This is impractical, uh, um, and then magic is in brackets. I wipe away my tears with a hammer. I brush my long brown curly hair with a sword. My shoes are active bees' nests, and my car windshield is made of stone. Impractical, impractical, I live an awkward life. Impractical, impractical, I take out my contact lenses with a knife. 
I clean my teeth over telephone. I don't even know if that makes sense. I wipe my ass with a handgun and dry my hands on a treasure chest. Impractical, impractical, there's danger at every turn. Impractical, impractical, I brush my teeth with a suitcase. I try to pay for things with gestures and usually end up getting escorted out. I show love by screaming and contorting all of my fingers, thus frightening the children all around. Impractical, impractical, I wish it wasn't so difficult. Impractical, impractical, I wish I hadn't just said difficult. Impractical, impractical, because nothing rhymes with difficult. Impractical, impractical, and I would know because my surname is difficult. Impractical, impractical, not that it's difficult to say, it's actually the word difficult. My name is Brian Difficult. Impractical, impractical, Brian with an I. I, like, I've not seen Practical Magic, and I've never thought about it like an imagined sequel to it, but I'm not sure how those lyrics would sort of conform to the narrative of the film. Yeah, I'm not sure how they'd scan into any song, really, but it seemed like there's an awful lot of syllables, especially towards the end, but it definitely tells a story, that's for sure. And at the end, the way that he says, um, you know, he wishes he hadn't just said difficult, because nothing rhymes with difficult, but earlier on, he said... Um, I, what uh, was it? Impractical and practical. I brush my teeth with a suitcase, and that doesn't rhyme with the previous line, which is impractical and practical. There's danger at every turn. So he's already like thrown aside the rhyming, but yeah. then he's worried about it. And the end, it just devolves effectively into him just explaining his name. Yeah. So he, just, he said he yeah. spent a long time working on this, like years. Twenty-four, twenty-four years since 1998. Yeah. yeah. I think you should go back and give it another look. <laughs> Just have another. Because we can treat that as like a first draft, Mr. Difficult, and then then go back and um yeah, send an email in in another twenty four years and we'll we'll see if it's any better. Yeah. Um so we had a couple of responses which were identical for the Arkansas. So I'm just I don't know if um Rupert and Laszlo, if you've got your responses there, it was to get from Sienna Miller to Robert Forster. Yeah, I'm wondering if a lot of people have the same one here. So yeah, I might go first because then it looks like I've thought of it <laughs> and everyone's copied me. Uh, oh. So Sienna Miller is in 21 Bridges with Chadwick Boseman, who's in Endgame, not that one. With Samuel L. Jackson, who's in Jackie Brown with Robert Forster. So that's a three-stepper. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, and Laszlo, have you got any anything up your sleeve? Yeah, I, I I did badly on this one. I was like, I got a four stepper, and I couldn't. And I was like, I couldn't even think of. I only the only film I could think of was Sienna Miller in was GI Joe, and so that was a bit of a, an issue. So I got I did it backwards. Robert Forster was in Jackie Brown with Samuel L. Jackson, who was in Avengers with Chris Hemsworth, who was in Thor: The Dark World with Christopher Eccleston, who was in GI Joe with Sienna Miller. <laughs> Well, you've both not done as well as our as our listeners, um, because both Max and Utah Smith said Robert Forster was in Jackie Brown with Robert De Niro, who was in Stardust with Sienna Miller. Oh, so it's just a two step yeah. for both That's of them. A good one. Yeah. Did not See, know she was in that film. Anything above a four step is effectively like a short walk, isn't it? So yeah, it's good that we kept it under five. But um, 
But yeah, the, I've never seen Stardust. Uh, and Max says, um, well, he said Forster was in Jackie Brown, I'm pretty sure. And then who's in Stardust, one of my favourite fantasy adventure films. I haven't seen it, but apparently there's a lot of British people in Stardust. Yeah, there's a lot of American people as well. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer's in it as well. Uh, but yeah, so I think you could get to a lot from Stardust. It's got a bit of an ensemble cast, yeah. Um. And there's there's also so yeah I mean oh actually I don't know if um Laszlo if you as as the podcast goes on if you want to make a note of the uh, two actors and we can at the end of it then we can as as a guest guest host we can then you can uh, you can set up the Arkansas for the next um the next podcast. Oh wow, what an honour! It's, it's it's a real honour. Um and the other thing is this happened just before the podcast. Um it's just a quote. This cops pops up quite a lot when we talk about um. Yui Ball on this podcast and it was a private conversation between us and our friends and someone who we'll say will give the pseudonym Shitwine Omega said that 1917 is better than Dunkirk and Rupert said yes it's better than Dunkirk as is Darfur and Tunnel Rats of course Yui Ball 2 Christopher Nolan nil <laughs> I just I, I like the... partially facetious, but also it's fact. <laughs> so <laughs> I just think there's probably only on this podcast is Yui Ball ever compared to Christopher Nolan for anything, and it happens a lot. <laughs> it constantly pops up. But I mean, one me... might argue that Christopher Nolan's overall canon has a bit more quality than Yui Ball, but in, on these specifics, Yui it comes would... out on top. I've never even, I didn't even know 1917 was a film. I've heard of Dunkirk, but I'm not really drawn to war films. 1917 is a very cool war film by Sam Mendes, and it's shot as if it's a single shot the entire film. I mean, it's not, but it's got very, like two or three very clever edits. It's really good. It's very it is good. Is, is it a recent film? Yeah. It's a couple of years old. Three. Oh, nice. I feel like it's so, on Prime. It was. It's on something, yeah. And, and it's good, you say, and it's on Prime. That's a. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound right, actually. Unusual. Yeah, I must have been mistaken. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's on Rakuten, the worst streaming service. Um, so, yeah, so Tunnel Rats is generally good, so everyone should watch Tunnel Rats if you like war films. Now, moving on, because obviously, um, before we go to the Kevin Conroy Batman chat, um, I'm going to, because Albert Pian sadly passed away today, I'm introducing you to the inaugural. Albert Pian Nemesis Memorial Movie Quiz. So there's actually a prize to this. You'll be crowned the Albert Pian Nemesis Memorial Movie Quiz champion. Uh, there's 10 questions. And um, the winner, uh, when, when we next go out, I will I will buy a drink for. So there's a the genuine prize to this. Um, I'll keep track of the score. And I realize because this is a podcast, obviously, you know, there's 10 questions and I've got a tiebreaker here as well. So you both need buzzer sounds. So I was thinking, luckily, Albert Pian at his time of death had two films uh, that were in production. So before you say your answer, as to sort of your sort of verbal buzzer, if you like, uh, for Rupert, you have to say Cyborg, Rise of the Flesh Eaters. And Laszlo has to say Algiers. And, the, and, the, and then whoever sort of speaks first can then, can then uh, make their answer. I'm just going to let my cat up. She's meowing at me. What do I have I'm to wondering... say again? It's, oh, I didn't catch it. It's, it's sorry, quite a long one. Yeah, it's Rupert. You've got to say "Cyborg Rise of the Flesh Eaters." Jesus. And um, Laszlo has to say "Algiers." 
Is this multiple choice? Because I haven't actually seen Nemesis. Yeah, or Nemesis 2 Nebula. No, 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 no. no. It's, it's a g- general movie quiz, but it, it's it's a, in memoriam of, of Albert Pierce. Oh, okay. You were, okay. It's just called the Nemesis because obviously he had a film called Nemesis and you are now both Nemesis's Nemesis, whatever that is. So, yeah, I'm going to read out four of those stupid films. Um, the fourth one was probably one of the worst. Sorry, Albert, but wow, that wasn't very good. <laughs> It wasn't very good, and it and and it had um what's his name in it Andrew Divoff as well. So obviously there's a level of expectation there. <laughs> um, apart from Wishmaster too, I suppose. Um, yeah. So Rupert Cyborg, Rise of the Flesh Eaters, uh, Laszlo Algiers, and then give your answer. So whoever speaks first gets to answer first, and the point goes to them. Um, are you okay. ready for this? Yes. Yeah. Feel free to interrupt at any time. Okay. So the first question. What does Dan Aykroyd hide in his Santa costume in Trading Places? Cyborg. Algiers. Oh, oh that was Rupert first. He was there. He didn't say the full thing, but I'll stick with Cyborg. <laughs> uh, it's a fish. Uh, I'm going to need specifics, I think. It's a raw fish. Uh, what? Salmon? Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Salmon. Cool. Okay. I was not <laughs> happy with that at the time. I was actually, my eyes were filling up with blood then. I was feeling dizzy with rage, so I'm glad you said it to Salmon. <laughs> Um, okay, so the second question. I've never seen these before, by the way. I'm just reading them out now. Which actor played the title character in Fred Claus? Cyborg. I can, oh, yeah, go on. I'm just going to say Tim Allen, even though I know that's clearly not true because he was no, in Santa no. Claus. I was, was going to guess him too, even though I know that's not right. I'll, I'll give you, obviously you can't answer now, but last I'll give you a clue. He looks tired all the time. Um, oh, Tommy Lee Jones? <laughs> Can you imagine him as Santa? Um, <laughs> it's actually, the answer is Vince Vaughn, so no points there for us. <laughs> Okay, question three. These are all festive, by the way. Okay. Who who voiced the character of Arthur Claus in Arthur Christmas? This is gonna be a British actor, isn't it? <clears throat> if I can give a clue. He's young. He, yes, and he is an actor that can vomit on cue. <laughs> Um, Cyborg. Okay. I'm going to guess James Corden because he looks like someone who could vomit on cue because of all his uh, overeating. <laughs> um, incorrect. So that goes to the last one. I will say that you, when you said his first name there, I thought you had it and then you fell oh. at the, the second hurdle of the surname. Oh, so it's James Ramar. <laughs> if only. Again, great Santa. So, uh, Laszlo. Oh, so a James. Um, I'm going to guess James McAvoy. And you would be right. Oh, that was a good yeah. guess. So, yeah. yeah, that's a good one. So that's uh, it's one all. The next question. Jack Skellington appears in which Tim Burton Cyborg. movie? Yep. Nightmare Before Christmas. Yep, that's, uh, that's another point to you. In which movie did Michael Keaton star as a man who reincarnated as a snowman? Oh, Cyborg, Jack Frost. 
Yes, that is the film where, of course, a really beautiful American actress whose name I can't quite recall falls in love with Mark Addy. <laughs> I say that age-old saying she would not fancy him, especially if going from Michael Keaton as well. Michael Keaton like blows his brains out, whatever happens to him, and it's like, oh, I'm gonna have to fall into the arms of Mark Addy now. Obviously, um, is it is it like in um, the Holiday? Where Kate Winslet falls for what's his face? Jack Black. Jack Black. <laughs> yeah, that's unbelievable. He just keeps on. It looks like he's just leering at her through the whole film, and there's no. They never, they never like kiss or anything because it would look silly. It's like they knew it would look stupid. And because that was his the, face is funny because he's got like an almost like an ironic perma scowl. He just doesn't work as like a, a cuddly romantic lead. <laughs> No, not at all. It, that was the film that I just kept on saying she wouldn't fancy him. And every and as the film went on, as as they were supposed to get more and more sort of close, I just think well, no. It's even the closer they get, the the more apparent it is. Especially at the end when like who's the other who's Cameron Diaz end up with? It's like oh, it's Jude, Jude Law. Law isn't it? Yeah, and uh, surely Kate Winslet when she's got the gravy on, she looks through the window at Jude Law and like Cameron Diaz dancing, and then she looks at Jack Black. <laughs> she must, she must think, oh fucking hell, I really drew the, like, I really drew the short straw here, haven't I? Um, yeah, so it'd be better off going up with Frank Black from the Pixies. Um, so the next question, it's it's three one to Rupert, by the way. Which 2020 Christmas movie starring Kristen Stewart? Oh, sorry, which 2020 Christmas movie starred Kristen Stewart alongside Aubrey Plaza? <laughs> uh, this is going to be that Netflix one, isn't it? I can't remember the name of. Maybe. Is there, is there nothing? There's nothing. No, I don't name. know. Okay, that was Happiest Season, a film I've never that heard is about. not a film I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that is on IMDb. Um, the next question then. So you've re- you've got to really pull back here, Laszlo. You've only got four left. What is the name of the song sung by Kermit the Frog on Christmas Eve in the Muppet Christmas Carol? What a minute, I've never seen this movie. Yeah, oh, I've not oh. watched many Christmas movies. I feel like I'm a disadvantage. I'm wise for doing that. <laughs> but I say, when I say doing that, I mean not doing that it's the answer is only one more sleep till christmas so so three left what was the name of the toy that arnold schwarzenegger was desperately trying to buy oh yeah turbo man can you say it as he says it turbo man (laughs) gonna give you a jamaican i'm gonna give you a bonus point for that so it's three all wow (laughs) 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 <laughs> okay, so two questions left. What unconventional Christmas movie stars Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman? Algiers. Oh, that was that was Rupert first glance. Is Die Hard. It is indeed. Too brings, Die Harder. <laughs> that brings it. So this final question. Well, actually, I'm going to do. There's another question as well. Who starred alongside Vince Vaughn in Four Christmases? Uh, Algiers. Yep. I'm, I'm just going to guess. Uh, Owen Wilson. <laughs> what a be. It's not. Probably. It's a, it's, it's a female lead. Uh, oh. Um, I don't know. No, That's I don't it. know. It's, it's, know. it's Reese Witherspoon. Okay. So, uh, yeah, and the final question then to bring this okay. to a draw. 
Um, and this is the, the who's the closest answer. So this is obviously been the Albert Pian Memorial Quiz. Mm-hmm. How many films has Albert Pian directed, not including the ones in production, in total that have, have released? See, I think he was closing in on fifty. Was it? I'm going to say fifty. Okay. I'm going to go higher, and I'm going to say seventy-four. I, think oh, I feel like I've seen it somewhere, but I'm probably wrong. The answer is 52. Ooh, so nice. Rupert won that. So it's 5-3 five, five, to Rupert. So you are now the inaugural Albert P. and Nemesis Memorial Movie Quiz champion. And I owe you, and I owe you a pint, basically. So oh, okay. congratulations. You've won every, all copies of all of his films on Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't reckon I'm on Blu-ray. I'm sure that some of them never made it. I mean, Interstellar Civil Wars... Flaws would probably be only more stark in high resolution, I'd say. <laughs> what, as opposed to 240p. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you want to take over the lead route, but that brings us to uh, the, the Kevin Conroy Batman chat. Yes, Kevin Conroy. The reason why it is a Batman chat is because we thought, well, Kevin Conroy is known predominantly for his work as the voice of Batman, starting with the animated series in the early 90s, and then running all the way through to, well, the latest animated um, films, but also he voiced Batman in the Arkham series of games, except Arkham Origins, which was a notable failure um, for his absence, although actually I quite liked it. But he... Yes, Kevin Conroy. He, for me, and I think we mentioned this last week, he was the voice of Batman. He's who I associate Batman with for mm. anyone, really, because his voice was so perfect for it. And I suppose a big part of it was his, uh, the way he worked alongside Mark Hamill as the Joker, who was, who was a perfect Joker as well. I, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it it only increased the kind of uh, the iconic status of both of them working alongside each other in tandem. So, and of course, the animated series was just brilliant anyway. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, but I thought, well, we can work our way up to Kevin Conroy's introduction. But I figured we thought we might as well go through a kind of Batman chronology in film. Um, because it's had a potted history. And actually, Batman 1966 was where it started. It's genuinely the first movie. Uh, There were previous films before that, but they were like serialised films, so I don't think they really count. But yeah, 1966, that was basically really an extended TV episode, to be honest. It's the one that features the shark repellent spray and... And of course, it's got that classic scene of Batman running along the dock, trying to get rid of a comedy bomb. Uh, and the plot is well, all about. That's the end of French Connection too, isn't it? As well. <laughs> no, run. I said running, <laughs> <laughs> not wheezing. Um, um, but yeah, in this, yeah. So the '66 film involves the plot to turn like the representatives of this, uh, like. World Security Council into like dehydrated dust. Amazingly, loads of them actually do get turned into dust, and then they manage to turn them back 
Bloody hell. Yeah, so it's a happy ending. It's like, that would be tricky to reconstitute. But um, <laughs> yeah, obviously, as you'd imagine, it's very, very much in the tone of the TV series. So very, very light and jokey with the kind of like um, onomatopoeic words flashing up on the screen when the punches are thrown and stuff. All that kind of stuff. It was kind of fun. But have either of you seen it recently or ever? I saw it when I worked at a video store. You haven't, did you say, sorry, Leslie? No, no, I never have. It is quite amusing. Is it on streaming services? No, you don't get any Batman on streaming at all, except Lego Batman, maybe. Yeah, that's true. It's very disappointing. Do you think the bomb, like getting rid of the bomb at the end of Dark Knight Rises was like meant to be a weird little nod to that scene where he's running down the pier with a bomb and things i've never really film. thought about it to be honest but now you mention it and mm. yeah actually does the um and does that 1966 film with it running with a bomb down a pier a comedy bomb does it then sort of end with a sort of half realized unclear possible dream sequence as well or does it is it more no, definitive it's, it's actually really quite definitive it's a quite clear ending so it's um, another it's, another film that's better than something that christopher <laughs> nolan has done well we've got a little way until we get to nolan so actually after 1966 the next next batman movie wasn't until 1989 and that of course was tim burton's introduction and then but then you think about like obviously at the time i say obviously but it wasn't that obvious but at the time it was quite uh controversial like burton's vision because it was seemed so ridiculously dark but that's because i suppose everyone's last exposure to batman on any kind of film would have been the 60s batman so tim burton's like super gothic uh very very dark noir vision was quite different and then of course he made a sequel in 1992 which I think Batman Returns might be the best one of the lot. Best live oh, action really? of the lot. That's a bold. That's a bold statement. Uh, really, really holds yeah. up. Yeah. With them, um, I suppose yeah, with the comics in the eighties, with with was it Frank Miller who yeah. was doing stuff? So I suppose yeah, so the comics were getting it got darker move with the times. But yeah, I suppose like you say, the the sixties TV show was just people's last exposure to it. So it's it makes sense. I didn't realize there was any kind of backlash against it because. You know, when I watched Batman, it was just I was into the comics and I watched the film probably a few years after that because I would have only been about six when it came out. But I just I just thought that was really good. Um, yeah, I didn't I mean, think I, when I say I mean, in terms of backlash, I don't think it was like because it wasn't like bullshit social media like bickering back then, obviously. So it wasn't like fans like railing against it. I think it was more articles questioning whether it could succeed etc whether it was the right direction to be going etc but of course it turned out to be a massive hit batman returns less so um it's, yeah it's yeah. funny that i remember when 89 came out and it was like really big like it was a mm-hmm. big hit wasn't it and but i remember yes it being like people because i was quite a kid you know as well and and the people were like oh i wouldn't go watch it it's scary you know you wouldn't like it and that just made me want to watch it more yeah 
Well, but, and I think, um, but it was sure like it was... a shock that it was this sort of bleak and not bleak, yeah. but I guess dark and gritty. And yeah, and then if you watch it now, and it's quite goofy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sort of, it feels but, like it's um, got more in common with the '60s TV series in a way because it's very, very over the top and kind of like not childish because it is quite brutal and he does kill people in it but it's very very almost cartoony in a way um yeah i'm pretty sure pretty sure it was the first 12 certificate cinema film in uk yeah i think you're right i think yeah i think you are right um, and then the second one was definitely a 15 because that was even more horrible anyway this yeah go on sorry no go on um, yeah, I was just I, the, the 1989 one. I think is in terms of live action. I think that's probably my favorite Batman. Mm. I, I like Batman Returns, but I just find it I find it kind of a perfect comic book movie um, because it's it, it's so like black and white, and then Batman is so sort of cool and moody and brooding. The music's so tasty in it. The soundtrack's mm. awesome. It looks gorgeous, and then I just think that like Jack Nicholson's Joker is genuinely really, really funny. That is a big um, factor. Yeah. And an actual like creepy, like insane threat as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, I just think there are so many moments in it that because it, he is silly in it, but it, and it does feel silly, but it never feels sort of buffoonish. It never just feels like a cartoon. There's always that sort of, it's too well filmed. It just seems stupid. Yeah, but it, it does have a sense of humor in it throughout it, and it just seems like the most, definitely the most sort of quotable, and I have the most, um, the strongest memories of that. I, I preferred it to Batman Returns, but you're right though, because the sequel is is dark, and it's quite. When I think about Batman Returns, the first thing I think about is just how much Danny DeVito spat when he talked, spat this thinking, horrible yeah. like black liquid. It's like wow, it's so foul. Yeah, yeah, it's it probably is too brutal. Returns in a way. I mean, he literally Batman set someone on fire to kill them in that film, so it is quite nasty. But I just think it's quite it's definitely a singular vision. Like you know, because Tim Burton was famously quite compromised with the first one, but but with the second one, it was it was definitely his vision. Yeah. It doesn't feel it, it doesn't feel a compromised film though. What the when first you watch one? It, yeah, it's, no, it doesn't. It, I don't think it no. does. It, yeah, in a way. I mean, the Prince soundtrack does feel a little bit like a stunt soundtrack. I don't know. <laughs> I, even though I love it, I love the Prince album. So, but um, yeah, I'm, most, I remember my sister like had the album. We used to listen to it like endlessly. Like bat dance, we used to dance bat around the house <laughs> to it and stuff. And I love the video where he's like half—is he half Batman, half Joker? Yeah, yeah. He's, well, um, that's the point of the album, actually. If you um, read the liner notes on the album, then every song is written either from the vantage point of Batman or Joker, so it's meant to be like two sides of the same coin, sort of thing. It's quite I like cool. the idea that Batman sits there writing songs. Yeah, yeah. About his experiences or that they would and, collaborate in fact and release a double album yeah and you know if he did it would be alfred turn up the reverb on the snare drum because it's 1989 and that's just what happens yeah um so that brings us up to 1982 and 
then in 1993 was mask of the phantasm mm. which was the feature film based on the animated series which i guess would have started around the same time yeah i think i think it was 1993 yeah yeah and this is of course where kevin connery jumps on board so mask of the phantasm is a very cool animated movie it's quite short it's it's like 75 minutes or something but it's about batman basically he faces up to this mysterious murderous vigilante who's killing gotham's mob bosses and he also is falling in love with a former girlfriend uh, called andrew beaumont and it's cool that the way that the case kind of deepens whilst the romance deepens is really brilliantly crafted and it's a very intelligent film the way and the way it introduces joker almost as a decoy is really cool plus it means of course that we get to have mark hamill as joker which is awesome uh and i think watching it now because i watched this quite recently the animation is a little bit rudimentary i'd say so i think it could pass by a lot of younger people but actually some critics regard it not just as the best animated movie batman film but actually the best batman film full stop which is a bold claim but it is very very good would it because i don't know if i've ever seen that i've seen all the episodes of the cartoon Mm. throughout the years but would it like withstand being made into a live action film if they just adapted uh, it you think uh up to a point gets very silly towards the end uh where the joker gets involved because there's this kind of um the big showdown is it this sort of science fair type thing and it's all this kind of like retro future technology stuff uh and it involves hanging on the back of a biplane and stuff like that but actually i think i wonder if that science fair thinking about it with the retro future stuff might have been a kind of inspiration for the the wonder city part of arkham city if you remember that which we'll come to later if you remember that kind of underground weird kind of sort of uh science fair underground under gotham you see in Arkham City. I wonder if it was just kind of an inspiration for that. But yeah, it's a good call. I'm not sure whether it would go. It would directly. It need to be fleshed out a bit, I think, to be a live action movie. On the subject of silly endings, like <laughs> just on Batman Returns, that was like the weak spot for me, and that was where the Penguin suddenly like has an army of penguins with rockets on their backs and stuff. <laughs> And it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And you're like, what? What's he doing now? <laughs> that was always the thing that let the film down for me. But um, Yeah, because he I had was a weird really... Ex- oh, I was going to say, I, I vividly remember the first time I watched this film because I bought it for my sister's birthday on VHS. And I was so desperate to see it that I sneakily watched it ahead of giving it to her. And... Um, and then, and then when on her birthday, then when she got it and watched it, I had to pretend that I didn't know what was going on and I hadn't seen it, which was difficult. Even, but. even though, like, we're 20 minutes before the end, when they start introducing the rocket penguins, you're like, oh, I'm going for poo, actually, I'll be back when the credits are rolling. Yeah, oh, this bit's rubbish. I mean, pr- probably it might be rubbish. It's bound to be rubbish. Whatever's going on here. I'll probably talk about this on a podcast in 20 years or something. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I um yeah, I I, I think my with Batman Returns, I think it was like you say, it was like really because like, it dealt with like but like wasn't it about the obviously he's effectively a deformed child who was sort of cast yeah. away by his parents. It's all this sort of followed by Pee Wee Herman. And then um and then and then you've got also that silliness at the end, so I suppose yeah, that's when you when you give uh, when you give Tim Burton the reins, that's what you get. So but Yeah, I mean it's I think you, returns you Returns came in for some criticism has come in for criticism because Batman doesn't feature that much in it. But I, I think it works quite well. It almost feels like he's out of his depth and Gotham's out of control. Like he's so desperate for him to actually come and save the day that it's it's fine for other people to take the centre stage, I think. But yeah, Mask of the Phantasm, I, I watched yeah. that. I know what you mean about the animation being quite basic in terms of but but then if you watch the animated series it's the same thing there's yeah there's a lot of moments of stillness and quiet where it'll it'll you know fade in and fade out and then move to someone and they'll start talking and the way they move it's not it's it's like you said it's quite rudimentary yeah it's not disney fluid type animation it's much more it's more like an anime or something like that which i think is fine because i mean the script is good and the story is good and conroy is of course brilliant and maybe this is a point to explain why Con- Kevin Conroy is such a perfect Batman? Because it's because of his voice, obviously, because that's what he's bringing bringing to the screen. But yeah. I think he finds that perfect balance between, which is you need to find balance with Batman, obviously. But that balance between smarm and smugness and swagger and vulnerability. But also, he had this really amazing deadpan humor. And I think he's unquestionably the best at that, like bringing the humour across in the kind of things Batman says, just in a totally deadpan way, without any kind of irony. Uh, I just think George Clooney could possibly have learned from. <laughs> I, I assume when he when he talks as Batman as well, he he goes <laughs> like as we all love. Yes. The, Is it true that that I know? We're going to talk about that later on. Does it? I've never made it through the trilogy, but does it? Does it get worse as the as the films go on? Um, his, yes. His, his yes, growl, I think it, it does. does yeah. He weirdly didn't rein it in on the third one, despite all the criticism. He actually kind of doubles down on it. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, some of the other uh, animations, uh, animated movies that Conroy has voiced. Uh, Batman and Mr. Freeze, Sub-Zero, that's a good one, because it actually presents uh, Mr. Freeze as a tragic character. Um, not less so in Batman and Robin, again. Uh, and he also did Batman Beyond, Return of the Joker, uh, Mystery of the Batwoman, Gotham Knight, Mystery of the Batwoman's good, and Gotham Knight's good, Assault on Arkham, uh, The Killing Joke, Batman Killing and Harley Joke. Quinn, and various crossovers. Yeah, the the Batman the Killing Joke is probably the weakest of them for me. I think that that yeah. that was a recent one as well. I remember really looking forward to that, and then when it came out, it was it it was like it just didn't because they they just tried to flesh it out too much because it's a really short comic or graphic novel. When they 
they were just pumping stuff into the film and i can't even remember what i disliked about it but i just remember coming away from it just thinking i really didn't enjoy that i enjoyed bits of it i think like the first 10 minutes or something and then it really took a turn and i just didn't enjoy it yeah i don't think thinking about i'm not sure the killing joke as a comic book is really that adaptable because the whole thing about it is is it's so brief and punchy that it is almost like a joke with a punchline isn't it because there really isn't much to it but it's so bleak and brilliant because of that because of course you get a bit of um background to how the joke became joker but then and then it's got that really horrendous ending but i mean it's quite simple and there's not really any subplots or other threads and it doesn't need them because it needs that clarity to make the ending work so well so yeah i don't think i'll bother with that Got very poor reviews. Oh, you've never seen it, have you? No, I I, I was put off by it. Yeah, there's there's, there's really the very no, thing no that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, Batman and Harley Quinn was quite fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, a, a lot of the well, all the animated stuff, like anything with Kevin in is is absolutely fine. Yes. Apart from apart from Killer Joke, really does stick out as I I, I don't think it, Kevin Corrin does a voice in it, but one of my favourite um, Batman animated um, movies is Under the Red Hood. Yeah, that was a good one. Who does do the voice in that? Is it? Is it Peter Weller? No, he does it in the um. Oh, it's you know the what's it called? The Frank Miller stuff, wasn't it? The. Oh uh, yeah yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Um. So okay, so. Mask of the Phantasm '93, and then of course we had Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Joel Schumacher's doubleheader. Uh. They weren't very good. 95, uh, 97. Do you feel that Forever is better or worse than Batman and Robin or just the same? I mean, I think they're both bad. Personally, I think I find Batman and Robin more bearable purely because it completely leans into its absurdity. So it becomes much more like it's sort of a throwback to the 60s thing. The problem, my problem with Batman Forever is that it almost tries to mimic a bit of the darkness of and seriousness of the Burton films, but just fails. And also, the worst thing is Tommy Lee Jones in that film. Oh my God. It's just ridiculous. Like watching, he's, I mean, I get Jim Carrey doing the Riddler as this stupid wacky guy, because that's what Jim Carrey was doing at that time. I still think he's a bit miscast. But, but then Tommy Lee Jones, he's basically. He's just doing like a Joker impression as Two Face. It's like, it's like he's in a Dick Tracy film or something. It's bizarre. It's it, yeah. out. He's try, he's trying to go head to head with Jim Carrey in terms of goofiness, which is a very very poor choice if you're Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> permanent perma tired Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> stunt double Vince Vaughn. I stunt double. Um, he um I. I yeah, I feel the same because I remember having a conversation with you and you said that um, this has gone back a few years when we used to live basically in each other's arms. And you said you preferred the fourth one. I remember really disliking those two films. And you said that you preferred uh, Batman and Robin to forever because of the reasons you just stated. And I, for some reason, went down yours for a, I think it was a Batman day, actually. <coughs> and we watched the films and then I watched those two back to back. And I thought, yeah, because Batman Forever is like actively an irritating film but the batman and robin if you just treat it as fun it's just sort of just silly yeah it's just it's, yeah it's sort of uh, like 
well, I wouldn't say harmless trash, but less harmful trash. It, yeah, whereas Batman Forever just seems bad and just like sort of like a, like it's just being cut and pasted together uh, and really miscast. Batman and Robin feels like okay, this is a Batman for kids again, and it's not very good. I mean, but to at be least honest, it's just rather not watch either of them. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would yeah. It's like comparing Hitler and Goering or something, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you hated both of those gerbils, didn't you? So Yes. <laughs> I think, like, I remember with Batman Forever, I prefer it to Batman and Robin just because there are odd scenes in it that are all right, where it kind of passes for sort of being on, you know, the same kind of uh, mood and tone as the previous ones. But then it just, it really, fly, again, at, at the ending where they're like, suddenly Jim Carrey has got a huge fortress island and you're like yes. he's just one guy like where, where did this come from why is he there how did he get it it's even got like fake you know there's a joke about fake rusty rocks and stuff so he's like he's, he's actually fabricated a giant island somehow on his own. Um, I don't know yes. what's going on yeah but then Batman and Robin was just bad like from the off i literally can't even think of a scene in that that is all right <laughs> i remember yeah. seeing it in the cinema and then like in the opening ice sort of heist thing there's like spotlights following the characters around as they're like going around and i was like i just remember in the cinema even then going who's got the spotlights on them like it's a it's like an ice show thing and there's somebody up in the roof actually sort of following the characters around with spotlights just um nonsense i i will say george clooney is astonishingly bad batman <laughs> and that was when he was still doing his weird wobbly head thing so that didn't help oh the next stretch like he did in um yeah yeah Dustal dawn yeah when did he stop it doing this really he, so somebody had a word with him didn't they a hollywood director Maybe oh, really? Tarantino or someone literally took him aside and said, you do this thing with your head and you have to stop. It's going to like kill your career. <laughs> but it's, you know, you really notice it when he's wearing a bat suit. Cause like yeah. then the Batman's head, which moves awkwardly anyway, is just sort of constantly jittering. Well, he, he wouldn't have been able to do it in Keaton's bat suit, would he? He snapped his neck. And so, um, <laughs> So, yeah, well, I will say that one thing that remains brilliant through all four of those first films is Michael Guff, Michael Goff um, yeah. as Alfred. He's yeah, he remains. He he treats them all exactly the same and he, he plays a character brilliantly throughout all of them. And he somehow retains his dignity. Yeah. Yeah. Sassy. Yeah. Sassy Alfred. And there is actually one nice scene, I think, Batman and Robin between Bruce and Alfred. And it's almost like a goodbye to Michael Goff. So that was quite nice. That was almost like a quite sweet goodbye sort of thing. So, yeah. So for that reason alone, I'd watch that over forever. That and Alicia Silverstone. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Where did she go? Um, yeah, she's a, she's just making say on TV the, shows. She? On the subject of uh, his um, Tommy Lee Jones's performance, there's a bit near the end, isn't there, where he's got to toss the coin and he and he says something to Batman. He says, "Ah, oh, yes, Bruce, you always were a good friend," and and he, he drops the mad thing. I think mm-hmm. almost for like just one or two sentences, 
and and but there's none of that in the rest of the film the right. duality thing is completely yeah, lost it's not there <laughs> defeat so, the objective the whole character really there we go <laughs> yeah. should have so been called one Schumacher <laughs> killed that man in 1997 and then Christopher Nolan resurrected him again in 2005 Batman Begins and then obviously started trilogy you know, the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises um, so yeah I mean Laszlo you've probably got some thoughts on this on this trilogy. I remember I mean my favourite and I think you're the same on this one as Batman Begins, even though The Dark Knight mm. gets all the the big praise. I think mm-hmm. Batman Begins. I just love this the the, the structure of it, and and yeah. it feels more Batman-y. It it's more fun. Gothic, it's more certainly. pacey, and yeah, yeah. I, the Dark Knight yeah. in the sort of there's a heat kind of styling and influences of that kind of crime thriller thing is great but it then narratively for me again no trips up towards the end where yeah. it just it starts kind of adding scenes you're like okay what well, there's more now oh okay and the subplots start to take over you know the sort of narrative thrust of it yeah and i think yeah as a whole Batman begins is the best one because it's enjoyable all the way through and it hangs together I will say though that the editing and the fight scenes in Batman Begins is yeah, quite astonishing. Awesome. It was like I guess it must have been influenced by Bourne films or something because you cannot tell what is happening to whom in the fight scenes. Yeah. They and used just, to, they, yeah. uh, they they came up with a new martial arts style for it, which is very close contact using elbows and right. knees, and it just doesn't suit like that sort of cinematic action i love it they create these things and we're, yet we're none the wiser because we cannot see what's happening um, <laughs> um but actually that is something that's very much corrected in the in dark knight where the action scenes are actually really really well done and actually pretty clear so that's good and i would say over time i've come to appreciate the first maybe hour and a half maybe of mm. the, the dark knight until like you say the plot threads pile up or get tangled up and then it kind of turns into a bit of a mess really it feels like it's a film that should have ended around the time of the hotel not hotel hospital explosion yeah around that moment but then it just seems to descend into a lot of uninteresting <laughs> subplots yeah. It's it's the moment that the one of his employees who worked out who Batman Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. was Batman he reappears and tries to blackmail Bruce Wayne that is like a whole thing where you're like what we don't need this this doesn't need to come back into it but we don't really give a hoot about this guy you already got rid of him in a clever funny way yeah and then it sort of becomes a bit messy from there but. and you do wonder what. Well, that could have worked in a way if you'd if the film had got to that point and they'd had some sort of showdown at the hospital and the kind of final reveal had been, you know, that Harvey Dent is two face to set up the next movie, if you like. Yeah, it mm. could have worked, but well, we can't fix it now, can we? Because then of course yeah. there was a Dark Knight Rises and we wouldn't have had 
classic baddie Bane. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I actually, I've come back to watch The Dark Knight Rises probably more than The Dark Knight. Yeah. And I can't really put my finger on what it is about it that I find quite rewatchable. It's easily like the messiest of the bunch, the most flawed. There's like, there's hardly any Batman in it. Um, but I don't know what it is about it. I find it kind of fun and easy to watch. Uh, let's stick it's it on. My wife's favourite Batman movie. Oh, there you go. What does she like about it? Uh, I think she likes it because it was the first Batman film she saw at the cinema. <laughs> I think that was about it, really. Um, no, I, I, well, I guess it depends on what generation you're from, really. I suppose some people regard Christian Bale's Batman as the definitive Batman. It depends on when you're born, really. Yeah. Uh, that's what you think of. I mean, is there a definitive Batman? I'm not so sure. I mean, Kevin Conroy's got the voice, but I mean, he wouldn't really be able to embody the <laughs> physicality. Casting-wise, I really do like Ben Affleck as Batman. I always it's thought just not yeah. had the film. No, I know, no, I totally agree. I remember watching The Town years ago, which, by the way, has also got a good performance by Jeremy Renner, I believe it or not. But in The Town, I remember thinking, uh, I think Ben Affleck would make a really good Batman, like possibly an older Batman. And of course, that's what they ended up casting him as. But he was in the wrong movies. I was yeah just to backtrack slightly because for me with with the Christian Bale stuff I think when I watched Batman Begins I was I just thought oh this feels like a really protracted origin story and I was just fed up of origin stories at that time so Mm -hmm. I'd never really got on board with that then the Dark Knight I enjoyed um and then the Dark Knight Rises I've never I've tried three times to get through and I can't because of course it's like you just said it's there's hardly any Batman in it and it's I've never been a big fan like for me the parts of Batman I like are the, are the really um like clean cut narrative structures the sort of detective mystery side of it or or, or the the sort of uh black and white side of it but mm. with when it comes to Dark Knight Rises it just feels like a blunderbuss of subplots being fired and because I had, didn't have any engagement really from the previous two films, uh, this I just thought I've got no investment in this at all. And there were so many like problems with it. And if you're not invested by you know by the first two parts of it, like I didn't like the first one, didn't mind the second one, going to the third one, which is the most sort of demanding of all in terms of the problems with it, I just thought nah. And I've never I've never seen it through. I've seen bits of it. I've got up to the point where Tom Conti kicks him in the back, and that always seems to be where my like patience with it sort of ends. Um, and every time I'm like, right, I'm going to get past Tom Conti kicking him in the back, and then every, the both three times I'm like, no, I, there's something about it that just I don't want to watch anymore. So um, I've never never seen it, and I don't feel any need to, to be honest. I tell you, on that Tom Conti note. I why was that not Alfred? It's still even when I watch it now, I just think this film would be so much better if it was Alfred and him locked in a prison and having to try and reconnect and figure their way out of it. This is how it's a weird one. Does he get locked? Oh, he gets he gets messed up by um, Bane, doesn't he? 
yeah. And then he wakes up in a prison on the other side of the world. Is that? Oh, of course it's yeah, right. Because uh, yeah, because if prison, if you remember, Bane beats him at pitch and toss, and as Batman leans over to pick up his two pence piece, he tweaks his back. Yeah, I've done something. Actually, I will say that the fight between Bane and Batman is quite cool and really scary, like really visceral. Although I seem to remember, uh, Laszlo, you pointed out that there's something dodgy about the sound in that whole scene, that there's a lack of crunch. I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I, I noticed. Some weird thing when I watched it not that long ago, that when there's a bit where it all goes dark and he starts saying to him like, "Oh, you were raised and I was raised in the dark and all that sort of thing." There's a waterfall behind him that's also making no sound whatsoever. That was a, something weird <laughs> I noticed that time. Creative license, I guess. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I I think the sound design is bad in almost all Christopher Nolan films. So I think that's well discussed. Except Tenet, where it's absolutely crystal clear. Yeah. Well, I definitely didn't think there was actually a problem with my television. Uh, yeah. That's never happened in a film before. Um, every character is wearing a full face mask at the end. I suppose, I suppose, though, that if, if the waterfall was making like a loud waterfall behind Bane, and Bane's talking through like a muffled voice, and he's saying, oh, I was rouged in darkness, and then Batman going, what?! And him having to repeat it wouldn't probably have the same impact as the final film. What are you saying? Take your fucking mask off. <laughs> um, and, that's why yeah. I don't cover my mouth. <laughs> that's why, that's why my mouth is out. I and mean, clearly Christian Bale spitting. Why? Uh, how does he beat Bane the second time? Is there a reason he can suddenly overpower him the second time they get into fisticuffs? Uh, it's pretty tenuous. Like, he's just more, it's more about like, belief in himself i think but he also does damage his face mask which seems to instantly make him weaker yeah oh the problem with bane is that he's quite scary at first as a physical threat but once he starts talking making speeches uh, he's just so verbose and his voice is so ridiculous that he it's like the the threat fades away with every enunciated syllable uh, that was my problem with him i think he should have been a pure physical threat and i would it would have been scarier personally but, yeah there's mm-hmm. a number of threads that just don't hang together in that the sort of plot line of encouraging people to rise up against the sort of mm-hmm. upper classes but then he's going to blow them all up anyway and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he himself, seems very like, quick to get on board. Blow himself that. up, so I don't know what you know what he's getting out of it all, really. I did wonder about that in the um, in the Dark Knight, where the Joker has got this gang of like stupid thugs around him, and then he says, "Right, we got this man." They're like, "Yeah," and then he says, "Right now, burn it." Why they wouldn't just shoot him and take the money because <laughs> that's what they're motivated by. Um, yeah, <laughs> are we are we going to talk about? Are we moving on now to? Is it Ben Affleck's Batman after this? Not quite. Okay. We've almost got there, but chronologically, we need to talk about, we need to slip into a different mode here because, of course, there was the Arkham trilogy of games between yes. 2009 and 2015, which we'll mention just because Kevin Conroy is in it. Yeah, yeah. Are, and they're, they're great games, but they're also really good Batman stories, which is 
impressive because I normally care not for stories in games, but they're actually really good Batman stories, which is cool. But also, if you listen to Kevin Conroy's voice as Batman in Mask of the Phantasm and compare it to what his voice is like in Arkham Knight, for example, it's it's astonishing. Like really? how it's so it's so much gruffer. He's I wouldn't say he's been on the fags because that's probably not the case, but clearly he's like 20 years older. But yeah, but it's interesting how he's it's really deepened. And I don't know, by this point, by the time the Arkham trilogy came along, it's like he's just sort of absolutely embedded inside Batman's soul by that point. So, yeah, very Probably the, the impact of his, the gravitas of his vocal performance is probably lessened by how you play the game, which I know is by rotating the camera when he's talking into the comm link on his wrist until the person he is talking to is perfectly lined up so it's just like Alfred's face projected onto Batman. It's true. I have like a whole <laughs> folder full of like screenshots where I've got, <laughs> where I've got people's faces like imprinted on Batman's suit. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, no, the, the games are amazing, and, and I know even Arkham Origins, which I think is it's a festive Christmas game as well because it's it set in the winter time. Um, and I remember, I, I'm not sure if this is right, but I'm sure at the time they said they didn't want to cast him because it's a younger Batman, so they wanted a younger voice. And I thought, yeah, but voices don't change that much, do they? No, I'm, I'm pretty like sure that Kevin Conroy could just talk slightly higher if he needed to. I mean, I think they got in Troy Baker, who's I think we've uh, discussed before, but he's a very good, very ubiquitous video game voice actor. And and I think what Troy Baker is good at, because the only reason I'm thinking of Troy Baker is because I'm playing um, Dying Light 2 at the moment, which stars Troy Baker, which has got an awful, awful script, right? But Troy Baker, he's a good enough actor that he can make terrible lines sound sort of convincing like someone would actually say them so testament to him Conroy never had that problem because actually the Arkham Trilogy was well you've heard you've heard Troy Baker singing the song The Fade off the medium soundtrack unfortunately I have as well and that is unbelievably bad no one could have made that song good yeah it's weird because he makes his living through opening and closing his mouth and I wanted him to only do the second part of that skill Um, I only played the first Batman Arkham game, Arkham Asylum. So I should should I invest in? The yeah, I mean, I city? Yeah, yeah. yeah, they really I do mean, hold up. Yeah, they really do. Arkham Asylum, the original, is like it's sort of like a Metroidvania type thing, which is great and it is a cool game. But City and Night, they're more open worldy. I hesitate to say Ubisoft esque, but because they're much more full of life than that but they're absolutely gorgeous and they really hold up graphically and stuff what you mean you mean unlike in um what's that bloody see watchdogs 2 it's not batman driving around a boring city talking to a load of wankers listening to shit music <laughs> weirdly it's not <laughs> that's bizarre um but yeah no i i would say uh, asylum has always had my favorite story because you can pound through it in like seven to nine hours yeah. um and then yeah, yeah, and they're all they're all good. I kind of revisit them all at different times for different moods. Yes. Oh yeah, they're very replayable. Part of the reason why I didn't 
move on to the other ones was that even by the end of Asylum, having played it for whatever however many hours it was, I still just mashed the buttons in every fight scene. I didn't know what I was doing, even by the end of the game. Yeah, that could become an issue because... <laughs> because it yeah. carries on for another four games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the controls do become ridiculous, especially at night where like the combinations... Uh, yeah. But I mean, I suppose you could you, just use... you could tweak the difficulty to because yeah. if you're like if you're just mashing getting through it, you're not bothered. But then if you want if you're mashing it because you want a challenge, then you could bam it up. Yeah, you could. I think it's still worth it. Yeah, mm. because actually the stories the stories are genuinely engaging. Okay. Cool. And it's fun just flying around the city and that. Um, yeah. So yes, well done, Kevin. You brought those games to life. Absolutely. Now we come to. The DC Extended Universe films being Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, Justice League, and soon The Flash. These are the ones that Batman are basically Batman's basically gonna feature in. If they release the Flash. That is an interesting question, isn't it? What's his name? Ezra Miller. What's their name, sorry? I I can't remember what he is today. Um yeah, Ezra Miller. He's a tinkering. Is he a sausage and batter? He's a... <laughs> well, I don't know. Some of the things you read about him, like the fact that... Well, I heard one where he's, he literally had started a cult and stuff. <laughs> like, and he's bonkers. He's like yeah. an egomaniac, crazy person. But he's just literally committing crimes. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a video where he wrestles some woman to the floor. Yeah. In a shop, it's like, oh wow, okay, yeah, yeah. He's we'll uh, see. It'd be hard yeah. on Keaton if they don't release that, seeing as they already canned Batgirl, which was going to be his return to the role. I it wouldn't. Is, I would. Yeah, they just released his scenes, and I just looked at them without any trousers on. I'd be happy with that. <laughs> it is baffling, though, isn't it? Because you look at Batgirl, which may well have just been a bad movie, which wasn't going to make money. Okay, could have just chucked it on streaming or something. But yeah. the fact that they dumped that so unceremoniously and then and the Flash still has a release date, even though its star is going bonkers across America. Yeah. Is he, like, is he on the lager alone? There's a cost then? factor involved where the Flash probably cost 200 million and yeah. the other one cost about 60 or something. Yeah. But yeah, it's... I think waiting for him to like get better is optimistic of them that does seem he like probably yeah. get it out now mm. before he shoots somebody <laughs> <laughs> i didn't i'll have to read up about this i didn't realize that he was uh, completely bonkers yes um so the thing is he's good act well I, I only really know him from we need to talk about kevin um but who plays a saner version of his retreat? Yeah, account. I was going to say, let's, uh, yeah, care for what we wish for there. So, okay. Uh, so, Laszlo, you probably, well, Batman v Superman, you seen that recently? <laughs> I have. Yeah, yeah. I accidentally watched the three hour plus version as well. Is this a Snyder cut? Is that one? This is, you, yeah, so they did a director's cut of batman v superman which was longer again um but it's actually it was yeah it's all right i mean it's so if just as taken as a batman 
film, it probably has like the best bat action scenes, but he does literally kill everyone he meets. Like there's even a bit where he, he, in the Batmobile, he rams into a car and it flips over and lands into like, crashes into a sort of a building. And you think, right, well, they're taken out, but then he harpoons the car and drags it along behind him and then flips it over into another thing and explodes that car and another car that it was hitting. And you're like, all right, so he's he's going out of his way to kill every single person that he's been against. Yeah, that was just malice in the second time, wasn't it? Yeah, which I know right, I'm not that precious about this stuff, but I know that there's plenty of people are. So it's probably not for a lot of people their definitive Batman. Oh, but by he's the very, way, it's Bruce Wayne. He's very like he's sort of he's, he's smarmy, suave kind of thing going on. It feels different from when he's then as Batman, where he's kind of a quite a primordial monster kind of thing. Uh, Laszlo, if you are going to revisit the games and you get to uh, Arkham Knight, I hope you like sitting in that Batmobile and playing Geometry Wars. Mm. I hope you like driving that up awkward, <laughs> dark slopes. In oh, my God, <laughs> yeah, they, that is I, a whole. I, I, game. I did refer to it a couple of times as the Twatmobile when I was playing that game. <laughs> oh, back in the Twatmobile, then for a bit of dicking round in front of some disco lights. Um, the thing is, yeah. I, I think. To just stick into the Arkham Knight Batmobile thing, they they're so desperate to make the Batmobile a, an appealing option in the game, but it's never going to be as fun as flying across rooftops. So you're never going to get into it willingly. So you only use the Batmobile when you're forced to. And actually, I mean, it's not that the Batmobile sections don't have fun in them. It's just the rest of the game's so much more fun. You, you wish you were playing something else. I mean, it's not like, all right, this is the game. This is the this is like a shooting and driving game, and it's okay. So I might as well play it for a couple of hours. It's like I could be out of this car doing something else <laughs> with this character. It's shown me what I can be doing. When they when they mentioned you were going to get in the Batmobile in it, I thought, oh, it's going to be a really cool segue between different parts of the map, and it'll be like really beautiful orchestral music as you really moodily and stylistically drive over hills and stuff, dark countryside through gothic. No, you're twatting around in rubble, going sideways in a car for hours on end. Um, like a, so anyway. like a shit crab. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, yes, actually, have like a, a stupid crab machine in one of these Snyder films. It just reminded me. It's um, like it's so slow and <laughs> ineffectual. And... And it's like as subtle as uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of that Blackadder quote about dancing naked on top of a. Anyway, yeah, it's rubbish. Silly. Yeah. Well, maybe he was. Maybe Snyder was uh, inspired. He just wanted us to remember not having fun in Arkham Knight. <laughs> glorious memories. So Batman v Superman. Yeah, I remember it being pretty rubbish and. The whole Martha thing sucked. Was it Martha? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a sticky point. It's like they, in the writer's room, they just suddenly went, oh, yeah, you ever noticed that? They're, both their mums are called Martha, and then they decided to make it a, a key plot point in the moment where he goes from bad to good. Yeah. Yeah, that feels like something that could have been a nice little 
quiet moment not a keystone in the narrative hmm. um anyway i don't know if you want to say anything about the other ones there's suicide squad justice league but i think the point is the overarching point is it's that, that ben affleck is absolutely wasted i know this is the problem yes. he he was a good he's a good batman and a good bruce wayne but he has been wasted on snyder stuff david ayer stuff yeah i i quite enjoyed the extended justice league film i don't know if either of you have bothered to sit through that because it is literally four and a half hours long really really not the extended one i've never seen the extended one yeah i i I may have bought it bought it on on 4k um (laughs) it's, it's an afternoon's entertainment for sure but um was it just Whedon took over or was it the other way around yeah yeah so and you can yeah. really really spot the like because i have actually watched the original cut since watching the extended version and it's it's night and day where the just Whedon scenes they reshot loads of bits and they're usually just close-up inserts on the actors uh, where they make a joke at the end of the scene instead of the scene ending as it was originally intended it's it's it's, yeah it's bafflingly bad but they really really (laughs) dial back batman in that then so he's much more affable and and quippy and right yeah it feels more in line with like yeah like a a car children's cartoon version of batman Okay. And he doesn't ruthlessly murder every human that he interacts with as well, which is a slight shift. Yeah, it's like him like driving down the road and then getting out every time he sees an orphan to strangle them to death before he gets back in his car and drive <laughs> off again. That's probably why it's four and a half hours long. It's all the child strangling. <laughs> um, to me, it feels like Ben Affleck's time as Batman is kind of up, just out of just being in bad movies but I, I don't know if they're planning on more i mean you've got the flash but whether that happens or not i'm not sure i mean is he going to have yeah. his own movie again or is it going to be robert pattinson i think that's man? i think now that's, that it's the baton has been passed hasn't it so feels that way. i think that's what the, the robert pattinson one started off as ben affleck oh really he was going to write direct yeah. and star in it and 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 the studio didn't like what he was doing. And I think that's when he kind of washed his hands of it. Although, yes, he has apparently come back to do a scene or few or two in Flash. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a little unclear because they're also doing another Superman film now with Cavill. So maybe he'll have a cameo in that. I don't know. Well, I like what they did with the Batman, what Matt Reeves did with the Batman. So I'm quite happy yeah. with the way they're going, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, this the bat the the Batman with Robert Pattinson was it's like absolute tie probably with um, the eighty nine Batman for me in terms of which is my favorite. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I was over the moon with it. Love yeah, it. I think it really hits a balance nicely between Tim Burton Gothic and Nolan hyper modern. I think it works yeah. really well. Quite finchery as well, which is like yeah. a a good sort of reference point and yeah i don't know whether i think we've talked about this quite a lot on the show so uh 
probably don't need to do it to death but yes i'm quite excited about where it goes next and i'm really really interested to see what barry keown does with joker yeah because he's a very absolutely. interesting actor it'll be it'll be interesting to see if there's any nods to kevin conroy in any of the upcoming media because he was so synonymous with batman i, I think i am going to just I'm probably going to have to purchase them. I've got a few on DVD, but I, I think I will go back to the animated series and watch a few of the movies and maybe work my way through the episodes. And and I think I will have to play one of the Arkham games again. Maybe maybe City or Night. Um, I think one um, Night might be on Game Pass. Possibly. It is, yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. I don't, yeah. No, it's good. That's good. Because you one can't get Origins that. anywhere. So, yeah, we all love Kevin Conroy, and we're all going to revisit Steph. Laszlo's going to go back and play all the arcade games start to finish tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so So, R.I.P. Conroy and P.M. Yeah, it is. Well, actually, we'll be talking about Albert P.M. in a bit, actually, because I watched one of his films. Uh, Speaking of which... um, Should we... I know there was a film you had last episode, Rupert, that we ran out of time with. Oh, yeah. I'm keen to talk about this. <laughs> you are, because I think you've seen this one as well. This one's. Called... I <laughs> this is a film called Tourist Trap, uh, and it is uh, currently showing on Shudder uh, by Amazon Prime. It was made in 1979, and it was uh, so obviously it was part of that wave of slashes which fast tracked after Halloween. Um, I think on. Uh, if you look on like Prime, it does it's slightly unfairly included in the Riff Track series, which I believe is like where you get so-called funny commentary over the top or mocking it, but I don't think it's that bad. So this is about this group of teenagers who stop in a rural historical museum full of creepy waxworks. One of which is the owner's wife, to keep her memory alive, of course. They think it's kind of quaint, but also eerie. But actually, it's deadly, of course, because the waxworks are coming to life, it seems. The main killer captures the teens and tends to cover their faces in plaster to make models of them. He's a bit of a brute. Um, It's explicitly supernatural from the start. Kind of sets it apart from other slashes. And... Although actually some of the best moments aren't, aren't really slasher moments as such. There are moments where like the girls, uh, the teenagers will come across like a waxwork that is quite possibly being played by a real actor. And there's a genuine ambiguity about whether it's human or not. And that's kind of creepy. Um, and the supernatural element does give an additional element of tension because it's not it's not immediately clear whether the owner of the museum is actually malevolent or not. Uh, I like how teenagers treat the creepiness of the place like a laugh, like they rationalize their surroundings and they actually embrace the kind of fun fear factor rather than just immediately freaking out and arguing, which usually happens in these films. Uh, It's unusually well shot. There's some really nice tracking shots and it doesn't constantly resort to jump scares. Uh, there are actually a few genuinely creepy moments, like when a character is surrounded by like mannequins, or uh, and, and then one by one, 
the mannequin's mouths all fall open and they let out this really weird like screaming song like cry that was cool and there, there were also really clunky moments though um like there's one scene where two characters have to pretend to be mannequins in order to escape but it's really poorly framed and edited and they're clearly moving <laughs> it just removes any tension from the scene um so like good idea badly executed um uh, the main killer is he's sort of memorable but he's not i wouldn't say he's the scariest he's sort of an unthreatening simpleton a lot of the time and it's a bit of a it's one of those performances very heavy with like ticks and aff- affectations and and he gets a lot of the dialogue where it's like it's like his character's developed an awful lot whilst the actual main protagonist nothing really it's all about him so. i believe you're referring to the uber american chuck connors yeah that's the man the jack palancian chuck connors uh and finally the ending is kind of unexpected although not not in the same league as someone like sleepaway camp but it's uh it is at least a bit of a you know a shocker ending and overall i'd say as a early slasher it's above average it was all right i i did like it because yeah chuck connors is like he just is is effectively jack palance as far as i'm concerned um but i just remember the opening sequence where they go to one of the guys the the car breaks down and the guy says i'm gonna get some gas and he goes into a gas station and it just kicks off and you can just see him looking and thinking what is happening yeah straight away blazing it's instantly supernatural as well so there's no ambiguity it's like straight in there just like mannequins coming alive and stuff yeah, well, spoons flying out of drawers and going up his bum. It was amazing, straight off the bat. So, yeah, I, I, I did enjoy that because I wasn't expecting it to be as bonkers as it was. Uh, yeah. yeah. It just seems to stand out amongst a lot of shoddy crap from that time. I, so. I, I know that what you mean about the um, people being cast as mannequins, because there are scenes in it when obviously it, it's quite um, uh, claustrophobic later on in the film when they're in these certain situations. Mm. And, and do you know, the problem I've got with... Um, you know, you know, you watch films like, say, Annabelle or whatever, and it'll just zoom in on the dolls really slowly, and mm. you're like, I know, I know, it's not going to move. I do. That's the whole point of this film. I'm not going to see it, and it's just irritating and time wasting. But in this, sometimes you're in, they're in a room full of dolls or mannequins, and some of them like are moving, and it, and as a viewer, you're watching it thinking, is someone pushing that, or is that is that just me? It is actually quite off-putting in in a positive yeah. way. You know, it makes you feel slightly uneasy at what you're looking at. You're not sure if it's yeah. just real or what. That's really what it comes down to is that the reason it's above average for the this particular genre is because it actually has a sense of unease to it, which yeah. is more than could be said for a lot of these slashes because they just go they're very one dimensional. Cool. Um so yeah, definitely where is that? Sorry, is that on Prime, do you say? It's on Shudder by Prime. Shudder. It's quite difficult to get hold of any other ways, so you couldn't get hold of the 12k um, Blu-ray. Did you? Oh, I did really struggle with that, actually. <laughs> um, well, L- Laszlo, as our, as our guest host, do you want to go through a film you've seen? Uh, yeah, I guess I could talk about X that I just watched the other weekend. Oh, yeah. Um, nice. and, I, and I kind of assumed that you guys would have watched this because it's sort of in your... Rupert, in particular, wheelhouse for kind of two retro slashers. Yeah. 
it's time it's like waste, it's very isn't it? much it is i don't know much about him i don't usually like watch the horrors that often but like um i did i quite enjoyed it and it's got like a a very retro-y feel like it's set in the 70s and they're filming stuff on an old film camera so there's like film shot material in there it looks like it anyway um it does kind of follow the the sort of steps that you would expect like a a slasher to follow it doesn't really narratively shake anything up but um but it's it's good it's quite fun there's some nice creepy bits like I, I don't know how, how much I should reveal. Like, there's the there's an old couple in it who are just rank. <laughs> like, there are there's like scenes of them having sex and stuff, and it's just like, oh wow, okay. Um, <laughs> but what is really interesting about it is that I found out afterwards is that the old lady in it is actually played by Mia Goth, who is like the main young woman in it. She's like playing both roles, and it's really really like well done because there's no point does it feel like there's some trickery going on and i couldn't tell i mean there's obviously makeup on the old lady but you i've never have guessed it was her and now the prequel that they're making for it is with mia goth playing that old lady as a young woman which is quite (laughs) quite clever like casting anything about it yeah yeah um, Ty West is, she's really yeah. good she's great in it and yeah so it's, it's kind of worth a watch for fun it's like it's literally like 80 minutes long as well yeah he's I mean yeah, that sounds very much in line but it, with the other stuff that he's done House of the Devil's very good and and has a real 70s feel to it and the sacrament's good even though it's found footage yeah, I'd agree with both of those. Yeah, I didn't know that was Ty West, but yeah, I do really like that. Uh, t- two things I've noticed as well with X. Um, I've never heard of the film before, but just glancing um, as uh, Laszlo was chatting then, I question two things. One is Mia Goth's maths, and the second is just that um, Chelsea Wolfe uh, was involved in the film score, and she does this kind of heavy gothic rock that um, our mutual friend Shitwine Omega likes. So, um, yeah, Chelsea Wolfe is one to check out. Mia Goth, it's a quote on the special effects here. It says, describing your experience, Goth stated, it was a good 10 hours in the makeup chair, and then I go and do a 12-hour day on set. That's 22 hours, that is. <laughs> Just, you know, say, so she's saying that, like, in the, they're like, okay, cut. And she's like, okay, I've got two hours sleep before I have to get back in that chair. I don't believe that. That fanciful. Yes. Ty West, uh, he... He's a proper auteur as well, isn't he? Like he's he directs and writes and edits, doesn't he? Oh, well, so he's better than Kubrick cool. then. He writes. He's not just a hack that moves from film to film. Oh, that's interesting. Good point, Rupert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, instantly better than Kubrick, but not as good as Yui. <laughs> yeah. Well, producer he, as well. PN wrote twenty-eight of his own films. Hashtag JS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Six pages for every minute on screen. Oh yeah. Ty West, he's the one that looks like a cross between David Schwimmer and Adam Sandler, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, I remember that now from uh, last episode. <laughs> um, excellent. So I'm going to think about excellent. Excellent. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, one yeah, for the poster. So, <laughs> where did you where did you see that? Sorry, Laszlo. It's on Prime. 
On Prime. Oh, I will watch that yeah, with my feet. No reason not to watch it. Yeah. Will I watch it with my feet as well? Only time will tell. I need to, um, I still need to watch that, um, The Night Sky that Rupert uh, mentioned a while ago. I still haven't gone around to watching that film. Or every time we do a podcast, it pisses me off. I haven't seen it. I'm going to change tact and talk about Death Ring. And every time I have to remind you of its actual title, The Vast <laughs> of Night. <laughs> yeah, I think I always call it something different because I think uh, I'm, I'm going to call it the night flyer. <laughs> I'm looking forward to your review on this brick because I've I've seen that film and I did not have the the awe and wonder and love for it that, that I think Rupert has. <laughs> What's the, oh so really? Oh, this it was, is the, it was the, all right for like a low budget film, but I don't know. Yeah. So I didn't. It wasn't my cup of. <laughs> is oh, we should, we should reconsider the people we have on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, they have to like computer chess and the night flyer, <laughs> yeah. and the, and the, night, and and the, the night, night above. The night. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we came up before for a, a mutual friend coming up with like a list of ten, ten questions he has to ask like a a possible date to see if she gets like through to the, the next stage of dating him, and it was, it was like, can you name ten Chuck Norris films? I'm just sitting down and that's your opening gambit on a speed dating day. Um, so I watched Death Ring, 1992. Uh, just name up the cast. Drago. McQueen. Chad. Norris. Mike. <laughs> Mike Norris, by the way, is uh, Chuck Norris's oldest son. Um, so this is this is... If you go on uh, on what you don't need to do it now, but on Wikipedia Death Ring, because I thought, Christ, this this really is just effectively hard target of surviving the game, and they're all based on Richard Connell's The Most Dangerous Game. Any any film that's ever been made about like a group of people hunt you know hunting another human, it's like they just have to give him money and say oh, it's based on that because even The Condemned uh, with Stone Cold Steve Austin in it as uh, is based on this. But um, so this is a film where Mike Norris. Chuck Norris's eldest son, a man who seemingly someone has gone up from with a pump and just sucked out all of his charisma and then just squirted it into a stagnant pond. Um, he wins like a you know the sort of um, fitness contest where it's like you you know the well, like a pentathlon sort of thing, and he is um, crowned you know the, the fittest man in America or whatever, and he's also an ex Green Beret, and so naturally Billy Drago. Who is like this really operatic, um, evil uh, lord who runs the, this game where they just choose someone for like a load of his rich mates to hunt? He gets him kidnapped, kidnaps his wife as well, and says, "Look, we'll kill your wife if you don't join in." And then they send him off, uh, and he has like an hour head start, and then all these hunters get sent after him. And I was thinking, as this was being set up, this is so far up my street. This is like this is going to be a perfect ninety minute. Uh, you know, sort of action extravaganza. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, because what happens, it's just, the whole film, it just stumbles completely from the start because he's got no charisma. Right? And I, I'm not even sure if he was in any other films apart from this. And he just looks like um, like Kiefer Sutherland stunt doubling in a drama it, when Kiefer Sutherland was drinking his most. Like, just like slightly clueless and a bit like blank. And here that... I guarantee you is not with him today. <laughs> it is it is here, exists only in photographs of himself at a young age. <clears throat> and he so he gets sent off and Billy Drago has got his, his wife there. And these four hunters 
uh, well, it's five hunters, but Billy Drago just kills one of them before they even start the hunt because he mouths off at him. Uh, and he gives them these weapons and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is the ultimate hunt. Uh, so they all pull pool balls out of sock. And someone says, oh, I pulled out like a number seven. He's like, ah, yes, ah, perfect. And he gives him, I don't know, like a stick. And then the next guy says, oh, I've and Billy Drago, when this is happening, is standing in front of a wall that is rich with weaponry throughout the eras. And they give them the most boring weaponry. So as you, as a viewer, you're like, well, you know, I'm not getting a sense of the threat this guy's under. One of the guys pulls out like a number eight pole and Billy Drago goes, ah, yes, yes, yes. And just gives him three shurikens. And I thought, well, what? Like, that's not really interesting. Is it? Give him like a gun or like a machete or something more uh, that's visceral. Like, that's like the starting weapon in a NES game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Specifically in... Uh, What's that? Not karate. What was that? Not Strider. It's probably Ninja Gaiden. Shinobi. That's what I'm looking at. Oh, okay, yeah. But um, yeah, so he he goes off, and he's just being hunted by these blokes, and he he's made out to be this sort of like X Green Bear, like really you know really um really super fit and ahead of the game, and he sets traps that they instantly see and just avoid. And then they get into these really badly choreographed, clumsy fights. But they keep on praising him whenever they catch up to him. Like, oh, you're one of the best. I thought, really? Because all he's done is, like, put a noose on the ground, sit behind a tree giggling. You've seen the noose. said, where are you? And he's stepped out. And then you've had a bad fight. (coughs) I could do that. And I was never a Green Beret. Um, (coughs) there's There's one nice moment in the film, and I thought, actually, that's actually quite well plotted, is... They keep on talking about this previous hunt and how it was just a failure. They never explicitly say why. And they're like, oh, it's just the previous hunt was a mess. I hope, you know, we're paying extra for this one. I hope it makes up for it. And Mike Norris turns up in this, like, cave and bumps into none other than Don Swayze, Patrick Swayze's brother, and says, who are you? And he's like, oh, well, they got me for the last one two months ago, but I, they thought I'd be a good hunt, but I'm a, I'm a survivalist, so I basically have just gone to ground and they they just can't find me. And I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> that, like, that fucked up their hunt because he's just like so good at just hiding. And uh, that's what they're so angry about. Um, what what goes against that, though, is that they have this like nice moment where they're like, right, we'll work together and take down Danton Vax, which is Billy Drago's character. He is overacting in this film. Um, and but then as they're deciding what to do, they just get jumped by one of the hunters. But from inside the cave? And I thought, hmm, that doesn't make sense, does it? If you've been here for two months and then someone comes in, like a cave works, you know, this one entrance and he comes up from behind you. Anyway, um, so, yeah, that was a bit silly. Maybe it was the guy who was in the cave, like he was another survivalist who was in there even before Swayze was there. Yeah. He was so like hiding a... even further down the cave. Yeah. I have been disguised as your toothbrush for the last six and a half years. And it's like, oh, really? It does explain a lot, actually, as he smiles all of his teeth are brown. Um, yeah, so then the... It's just boring, really. I mean, apart from when it cuts back to Billy Drago, like, just chewing the scenery, which is fine. When it comes back to the main shootout at the end, they go back and it's just it's just boring. If all the fights are bad. Like, there's that nice moment with, with um, Don Swayze. Oh, I forgot to mention as well, Chad McQueen is in this. And his forward neck carriage is second only to Michael Madsen. If he was leaning any further forward, he would be looking at his own testicles. And he is, he plays the part of like this guy called Sky Lord Harris, who was this 
um like uh, when they were both in the green Brace, he was like a helicopter pilot supposed to be the best and is that his part- name or his title well it's in it's in you know inverted commas so i guess it's just it's not oh, sky okay. it's what they called him i guess in vietnam or whatever it's um, really like guardians galaxy or something the whole thing all of the billy dragon all of his cronies have got this this club they're in where they hunt people it's a it's it's like a twin Peaks sort of logo so it's like a triangle but then another triangle slightly below it if you know what i mean like sort of half on each other and there's a scene in this film that is just bereft of gravitas because chad mcqueen is supposed to be this just threatening presence and he's not he's got like a teddy boy haircut and he just looks like he's leaning really far forwards to try and see around a corner slightly before other people when they approach corners and it goes into this tattoo parlor and sort of sidles up to the desk and says hey i'm uh I'm looking to get a new tattoo. And the guy says, oh, what are you looking for? And, he's, and then Chad McQueen sort of conspiratorially looks around and says, I'm thinking about having a triangle on top of another triangle. And I thought that's not a particularly threatening statement, is it? You're not describing something like really full on. You're just describing two like principal shapes. Um and then yeah, so and the guy's like, oh, I don't do that here, mate. I said, like, well, can I can I have two circles then? Um, so anyway, this he eventually tracks down where this island is in a commando moment where it's like, oh, the island is, you know, the helicopter needs 150 miles of fuel. Where could it be? And he gets his compass out and there's a little island there with Billy Hang Drake on. on it. Yeah, exactly, brilliant. I've heard but, this before. So the end of the film, um, they kill Billy Drago. Spoiler alert, and then. Mike Norris, Don Swayze, and his wife go outside to the, into the grounds of this mansion just as Chad McQueen lands in his helicopter to pick them up. And it's all good. And they're all on the helicopter. Everyone's dead, apart from one henchman uh, that is he's kicked out of a window and you don't see her die uh, after a bad fight scene. And then they're in this helicopter and he kisses his wife, sort of high fives, high fives Chad, and the helicopter goes to lift off. And I thought, this is, the, this is freeze frame. Here we go. And then Mike Norris says, wait. There's one more thing I have to do. And he gets out of the helicopter to go back in the house. But then on the way to the house, he gets attacked by this female bodyguard. They have a really bad fight and she just gets killed. And then he gets back on the helicopter. And they and then it's a freeze frame ending. And I thought, well, what were you going to do, though? When you got out the helicopter, so you had something to do. What, what was it? Because you, you got interrupted and then you just went back to the helicopter. So you could have just saved yourself a bit of hassle there. Um, yeah. So did he just want to go back and kill the woman? No, he didn't know she was alive. He was completely surprised by her. Like he kicked her out of a third story window like 20 minutes ago. He had no idea. <laughs> he was, yeah. So it was no, it's, and I rewound it. So I thought, did I miss something then? No, he just gets, he gets surprised and almost beaten in a fight and then just goes on the helicopter anyway. Um, wow. So it's not very good. Um, and it, I don't know if it's on any streaming services, Although it does make me want to watch more. Don Swayze looks bizarrely like his older brother um, and sounds like him as well. But Chad McQueen is only in a few action films and I've seen two of them now. And I'm thinking I might just watch a few more because I like Billy Drago. I don't mind Chad McQueen. He's kind of funny to look at. Um, and Don Swayze is just like looking at Pat. So that's quite cool. So I might look for some more. But yeah, this was one of my brother Transvaal's 10p from a... This is probably the best of the ones he's given me. It's better than looking with an apostrophe Italian and um the bad pack hmm. so yeah death ring if you like hard target and surviving the game and the condemned by all means tuck in death ring yeah 
is it doesn't appear to be on any streaming services unbelievable no it doesn't appear to be okay uh we're next um your turn room yeah so i watched uh a, a film called emily uh which is a a new film uh based on the life of emily bronte 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 the uh novelist well say novelist she wrote a, a novel wuthering heights back in the day and um <clears throat> so this is a fictionalized account because no one really knows anything about her life her very short life and that's fine but it what they've chosen to fill her life with seems to be an awful lot of romantic drama cliches <laughs> and also a load of like provincial stuck in the backwater cliches also um i guess they're trying to bring it up to date i don't know um but yeah bringing someone's real life up to date but anyway so <laughs> Yeah, Emily, she's living with her sisters, Charlotte and Anne, who are supportive and disapproving in equal measure, I'd say. More the latter when they find out that Emily has been bonking her pious teacher in the garden shed. Outside house. And, and there's also like the spectre of their late mother. Uh, there's one quite memorable but very silly scene in this film where uh, Emily dons a mask during this party game and she basically like conjures the spirit of her mother and everyone her sister and everyone there go completely mad with awe and fear and then it all ratchets up and then suddenly the doors are blasted open by like a storm and it's kind of a weird horror scene in the middle of it and I thought well, it's ridiculous, but I thought at least it's a rare moment of excitement because actually most of the film is filled with shots of Emily Bronte striding across the Yorkshire Moors interminably. And I, I mean, I dislike biopics anyway, but I especially hate biopics where like an individual's genius is distilled into something sort of right relatively mundane the worst offender if you remember this you probably haven't seen this but the theory of everything eddie redmayne uh stephen hawking biopic mm -hmm. where basically stephen hawking's achievements about you know like delving into the like the very birth of the universe are essentially just like transplanted into this british kitchen sink drama and of course <laughs> The point here with Emily is that it's meant to sort of mirror the passion of Wuthering Heights. But but that's just a slightly dull idea. It's just an obvious idea, really, isn't it? Just having, oh, right, so she, she must have had a whirlwind romance on the Yorkshire Moors. Great, OK. You never get inside the head of her. That's the point of a creative person. Like, I mean... In terms of her life, her father has very high expectations of her, which is probably quite normal for the time for educated people. But her life is pretty sweet overall. She's just a bit of a joyless bore, to be honest. Like, I suppose we don't know anything about her, so she just comes across as a bit of a blank slate. And there's zero chemistry between her and the guy 
played by Oliver Jackson Cohen, the the love interest. It's one of those situations where the only reason we as an audience expect them to get together, uh, and of course they do get together, is because it's a film. Like not because you actually believe they would in real life. It's just because it's a film they will inevitably get together, and there's no other reason than that. I will say that the film has very beautiful music, and it is quite reminiscent of like the rolling piano melodies uh, of Michael Nyman and Philip Glass. So that was nice, and it is very tastefully shot. And Emma Mackey, uh, who I think is done tv mostly up to this point she's in sex education and she's a real talent she reminds me a bit of kira knightley but with much less of the self-aware affectation stuff and it it is at least well made enough as a debut to make uh, director francis o'connor want to watch she, francis o'connor's actually been an actor for like 20 years but this is quite it seems very accomplished for a debut technically speaking i just think as a piece of storytelling it's just a bit ordinary uh so yeah i think it's been universally lauded and will probably win loads of awards but i just thought it's not that great <laughs> it's like it's hmm. all right it's it seems like a if they're going to fictionalize her life mm. it'd be not be more compelling if like her mm-hmm. life does not mirror the book, yes. you know, that and is, then and then people yes. will query why she feels compelled to you know, tell this story. Or is she fantasizing about something that she doesn't have rather than writing about what she already does? Right. I know. Yeah. And I think in that way, actually, she almost does a disservice to her because it's almost saying, right, well, so she came up with this classic novel, which has survived centuries and still being read. And what was her inspiration? Oh, the same thing happened to her, basically. It's like, that's not really how creative people work, because surely the whole, the essence of creativity is imagination, which, and the basis of imagination is sort of empathy. So you're imagining what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, not just looking down at your own shoes, right about that. Ridiculous. So I don't know, it feels, yes, it feels like a disservice and hmm, I don't know yeah and also when you think about if you're gonna take a a fictionalized account or something then and you've got pretty much free reign and it's not like there are any like living family members who are gonna like kick off or sue you then you could probably be a bit more imaginative and it doesn't have to be just a dour like costume drama I mean it could could be some really imaginative flights of fancy here uh but yeah none of that it's just a pretty straight biopic with lots of cliches disappointing but technically very well made i'm not gonna watch that you're never gonna watch that (laughs) i'm not even gonna dar fool myself into that one i think um i yeah i've check out the soundtrack though it sounds good it is nice very nice um, I've got a few I'm, I'm happy to push back to next week. I've got one more I do want to talk about. So, um, Laszlo, have you got one you want to bring to the fore and tell everyone about? Um, well, I've, there's a couple that I've watched, but I haven't got a great deal to say about either of them. And I two, two minute trashings. Let, let yeah. it have it. 
the return Morbius. of the two-minute trashing. Morbius deserves nothing more than two minutes and the trashing. Um, <laughs> although the, my overriding sort of feelings at the end of it was, well, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. You know, wow. it, it wasn't as bad as um, an obvious comparable film, which was... Uh, a sequel to, sequel to Venom? Yes, exactly, yes. Ooh. It's not as bad as that, which was, like, amateurishly, bizarrely bad. Um, yeah, so it's it's at least competently made. There's just a complete lack of story and um and at the end like matt smith just he he goes bad just because the film needs a bad guy and it just doesn't make a lick of sense he seemed having a good time um but it's just sort of shallow hollow flashy nonsense like when he flies around which he does a lot he basically turns into a kind of a cloudy dust and oh, that, and so he's, he's practically invincible yeah so you like this is seeing a cloudy thing swoop past someone and then suddenly they're dead you know just like bleh, it's just boring that sounds a bit like cgi from 2005 or something yeah and it feels kind of neutered as well like because obviously he's got a hit of a friendly rating um but it, i wasn't bored it was just completely forgettable okay so it's on now tv if you can be asked um i I will watch it i think because i'm just intrigued as to how 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 it is because morbius as far as like my my full knowledge of the character of morbius is that he was a it was a vampire who didn't drink blood because it was an animated show it's the spider-man animated show from 92 and he kept on saying need more plasma and that's all he kept saying um so i like it's okay to like suck the plasma out of someone but not the blood because the kids will like oh mommy wants plasma suck the bone marrow out of his <laughs> yeah he does yeah he creates his own synthetic blood so he doesn't have to kill people you know it's like one of those things there is a scene near the beginning where he turns into Morbius, like the the vampire for the first time and he's on a boat full of like generic uh, hired like thugs with guns and it's so strange because he basically sets up he says I, i'm going to do this experiment but i have to do it in uh international waters or whatever um so he ends up doing it on this giant boat full of armed like mercenaries who are seemingly with him but then, like, just basically so he can then kill them all, then you don't feel bad. There's literally a bit where one of them sort of sort of says something mean to his girlfriend just so then you're like, OK, well, you can kill him. That's that's fine. That's not murder. That's screenwriting. Yeah. They're like, how yeah. can we get some people that he can kill and the audience won't judge him for it? But, um, yeah, I, w- I think I will watch that. Yeah. The funniest thing about the whole thing, I don't know if you're aware of the Morbin time like thing that went on on Twitter. I've seen references to it, but I never understood the etymology of that. Yeah, so they it was it was such a bomb when it was released that um, it sort of it became a bit of a joke, really. And then on Twitter, they started it started trending this phrase Morbin time, <laughs> and um, what's his name, the actor in it. Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Leto um, 
posted like a, a front cover of a script that said Morbius 2, it's Morbin time on his own thing. <laughs> and it started trending and like and, and and the studio then got this idea in their head that, oh, it's suddenly found its audience. Quick, quick, release re-release it. So then they put it, they spent millions putting it back in cinemas as a re-release for it to completely tank again. Like no one actually wanted to go and watch it. Surely so threw more money down. It was so toilet. obviously people being ironic. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think people clicking like on a Twitter post doesn't mean they're gonna <laughs> go and watch a full film on something. Yeah. I think the, the lesson from this is no one should ever listen to anything that happens on Twitter at any <sighs> scale. Yeah. Especially now. In March 2022, Leto also expressed interest in a future film featuring Morbius appearing alongside Venom. Well, oh, yeah, I think it has a tag scene thing at the end where they. Oh, yes. Michael Keaton turns up in it at the end. Oh, oh that's the reason has, to watch it. It's no relation to it whatsoever. And and he like then goes to a desert and he, I'm spoiling all this stuff, but it doesn't matter. And he meets Morbius in the desert. And goes, I think we need to team up. And he's like, <laughs> Michael Keaton don't even his, know each other. It's, is he oh, playing his character from um, Spider-Man? Then? Spider-Man. Yeah. Right. Okay. He like gets teleported in there, which obviously ties in with the multiverse of madness or something. Mm-hmm. And then he just wants to team up with Morbius, even though he doesn't know who he is or anything. It's- Hang on though, because Spider-Man and Morbius are Marvel, and Batman is DC. This is so more no, but he's not playing Batman. Sorry, he's, he's playing. He's playing Birdman. His Marvel character. Um, Hawk, Hawk. I, the vulture, the vulture, vulture, the vulture. <laughs> yes. Right. I was really confused there because I was excited as yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. No. Yeah. He was good in that Spider-Man film. I liked him. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I might watch that. And what was the other two minutes you went? Sorry, Laszlo. Oh, Wakanda Forever. That's a two minute. Yeah. I think the film lasts more than just, two minutes. It, it's bloody right. <laughs> Yeah, I was just kind of, it's really, I mean, not surprisingly dour, um, but it goes on forever. Like, it's, it's, it's a clever title in a way. It's um, <laughs> just kind of bored for most of it. It has some effective uh-huh. and touching scenes where it references what happened to Chadwick Boseman, but on the whole, it feels like a weird empty vessel. And then they sort of bump off other characters and you're like, Jesus, how many more people do you want to kill? Like, it's just, it gets quite depressing. Uh, is um, it going to be yeah. up for best picture? No, it is not. No, no, no. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I, I, I'm maybe on the edge of a bit of Marvel fatigue as well. Just the last few have been so underwhelming. And this one, sadly, is just another one. Bit of a dud. Yeah, this is probably one I'm not going to watch. As harsh as it is with Chadwick Boseman, I, like, I've never even seen the original Black Panther, but I I hit my Marvel fatigue a while ago, and I'll dip in for random films, but the sequel to a film I haven't seen isn't, isn't top of that list. <laughs> <laughs> um... Okay, so it's fitting that we end the podcast uh, with uh, a discussion about an Albert Piet film, I, Pian film I watched this this week, and that was 
the and don't don't I don't know if you do this, but don't type this in because I I have to explain something and I don't want you to give it away. So don't type in post mortem, right? Uh, this is a 1998 film starring Charlie Sheen, credited as Charles Sheen because he wanted it to be obviously like a serious film, uh, directed by Albert Pean. And the plot is that Charles Sheen's character is this maverick, um, sort of bit, like an FBI uh, agent that works out uh, modus operandi's and tracks killers down that way, um, kind of like the Fincher. Is it Mind Hunters? That sort of thing. Mm, yeah show sure, sure, which should have gone on longer than it did um so he moves away to a country uh he, 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 i think a child gets killed in a case he's a vault and he moves away to a country which i'll go into in a minute uh and he gets dragged into another murder case involving him now i want to see if you can guess i'm going to give you some clues and i want you to see if you can guess the country right so i've t- told you the basic plot so the the, the film opens and we, the camera pans across a load of cans of Caffrey Stout because he's an al- alcoholic. So loads of Caffrey Stout. He is smoking Irish cigarettes. It cuts to him going to a bar where a barman is pouring a pint of Guinness and ha- is talking to Charles Sheen with an Irish accent. And the main female cop is talking in a butchered Irish-American accent. So where do you think this film is set? Estonia? No, it's got to be it's got to be Ireland, isn't it? No, the film is very clearly, and they they mention it multiple times, set in Scotland. <laughs> and um, and if you go into IMDb, because this is before the part before we started recording this, I I typed in you know just to get my notes up post mortem, and the first line on IMDb I said what? It, it's the opening line on IMDb for post mortem is the only thing his name is James McGregor. The only thing James wants is to remain away from Scotland. That's not true, is it? Because he specifically moves to Scotland before the start of the film to get away from America, where he's got all this history. So it's just the, just says the wrong thing. Um, it is a, it's a wonderfully bizarre film, classic Pian, bless him. Um, the filters. I think I sent some screenshots to you both. Some whenever they're indoors, it's and and it's like a morgue setting. It's either incredibly rich blue, so it just looks like they're underwater, or it's this horrible piss, pissy gold color, um, so which just makes it look like it's the it's the early two thousands, and they're on the set of Fear dot com. Um, Charlie Charles Sheen has no just I've yet to see a good film with him, and he just wanders around just saying things. And the way the plot moves forward is absolutely startling because he is an, like a, a functioning alcoholic who gets over and gets dragged into this murder case. And the Scottish police, he is a prime suspect in one of the cases because someone gets killed in his garden after he shagged her. And he says, I was battered. I don't know what happened. And um, and yet they still say, well, come on, then get on the case and give us a hand, you silly sausage. Um, he refuses to help them with the case until he decides to drive out to the Scottish Moors and stand on the ramparts of a castle during a storm. And then he decides he's going to help them. Um, they eventually track down who the killer is. They track it. They realize that it, the killer is a wayward, creepy son of a funeral director who didn't want he was failing in health and didn't want his son to get involved because he, did, he thought he was too weird and he didn't like him 
so he just closed down this funeral parlor, but the family still owns it. It's a huge funeral parlor. It looks like a mausoleum. It's got like a bell tower and stuff. Charles Jean stands outside it, understands the family still own it. Trying looking at this huge building in the middle of rural Scotland, trying to work out where the killer, who he knows is this person, could possibly be hiding. Looking and smoking fags at this building, he knows it's still owned by the family. And the father's like, I don't know where my son is. Doesn't think they walk inside, does he? Doesn't think they check uh, until until the end of the film, after which a load more women have been killed. Um, so there's a scene in it, and I had to watch it twice to understand what was happening because I thought that like what they're saying and the actions that the actors are doing and, and going through don't make sense with where the film moves. Um, they find out the woman that is going to be killed next. And they're in this police room, this sort of unit they set up specifically for this case. And the p- person in charge of the case says, right, I need you to, to this woman who's this, I need you, the police officer, call the restaurant, find out if she's working. And then when, get her to come to the phone and they give the phone to me, I'll explain I'm a police officer, she's under threat. And then he turns to all the policemen in the room and says, right, we need to play this really by the book, really subtle. We if we make one false step, if, you know, if we're, if we're not completely shadowy and full of finesse, then this guy is going to know what's happening and we'll never see him again. We need to catch him. So the woman says, Oh, are you, uh, is Annabelle working today? Uh, and the manager says, yeah, she's here. She's here till eight o'clock. So oh, can I speak to her? And she says, yeah, I'm, uh, I'll get in now. And she hands the phone to a superior officer. The guy who just said, we need to play this completely under the radar, right? We don't need to draw any attention to this. She gets on the phone and she and bear in mind she's working in a restaurant and this is clearly cut from another scene. So she's in this like little restaurant in Scotland. She says, Hello. And he starts shouting at her, Where the hell are you? I need to see you face to face. I'm coming right now. And she says, Yeah, no problem. Say so we're up until ten o'clock tonight. Uh, he doesn't even say I'm the police. He says, Well, we're coming, and he slams the phone down, and she's she just puts the phone in really calmly. And it cuts to Charlie Sheen and about 30 policemen running down the main road blowing whistles. <laughs> running down the main road in Glasgow blowing whistles and shouting to everyone, get down, get down, even though like people are just shopping. Um, so they've run into this this where this restaurant is, and she's finished early, and she's gone for a walk to meet a friend at a car. So Charlie Sheen goes outside and he's like, oh, the guy's going to, you know, he's obviously the friend. He's, she's going to, he's going to kill her. We need to find him. And he, he says, right, all of you go over there. I'll go over here. Total, makes total sense, right? So like oh, 30 policemen run off in another direction and he runs around the corner where we see this woman is kind of her friend that she's supposed to meet, which we think is the killer, steps out. We never see his face. He's just kind of ensconced in shadow. He's wearing vinyl gloves and he grabs her by the arm and he's dragging her against her will into a car park. And she's kind of looking really worried and trying to put on with him and he's holding it and yanking it and dragging it forwards. And as they get to this car park, Charlie Sheen bursts out and tackles him and he stands up and this woman says, oh, it's just my friend that I've known for years. I meet up with him every week for a coffee. And then he's like, oh, what's going on? And I thought, no, because we've just seen him treat you really, really roughly and you are really frightened. And now it's like you're just backtracking. Um, and and it is. It's just a blow. It's just a really badly acted scene. Um, and then he's not even the killer in the end. It's not even the killer. It's just it's just like so badly made. It's just like this fictional tension. So. All the police then turn up and the woman's like upset and then Charlie Sheen explains, right, you know, there's a woman, the guy after you, he's going to he's gonna try to kill you, so we have to look after you. So 
the man in charge of the case suddenly takes the woman who's really upset and he like leads her off to a quiet corner of the car park and i thought oh it's going to turn out he's involved no it's just so badly written that he just has to walk off into the corner of this dark car park away from everyone and then he just gets jumped and and killed and she gets taken off to sort of set up the end of the film with charlie sheen finally realizes or maybe actually he's in the family mausoleum that's supposed to be empty that i didn't look in um and yeah and it's just then the end of the film is just charlie sheen standing on a cliff top it was bollocks it was total bollocks uh, but I, I it's like it's so willing in so many scenes to just try and cheat the viewer into thinking there's any kind of sense of threat by just actively cheating and just showing scenes that don't make sense in terms of the narrative structure of the film it's definitely worth a goofy if you like bad thrillers and that's post-mortem and it's on prime bobs yeah i'm not sure whether there's going to be an alvapine uh retrospective on my part no i will continue to watch a couple of his films as and when they pop up because like i was intrigued with this because it's set in modern times i mean last week i watched the sword and sorceress um but this sword and the sorcerer sorry but this this was Mm. just you know he was ill i thought i'll watch one of his movies and this is a set in modern time and it was just it's still baffling it just yeah this one is more entertaining but well so it's at least entertaining rather than just utterly boring because that was the problem with the nemesis sequel yeah no this is there's obviously money in this and there's actors in it yeah. stuff. it's just bizarre that like there's there's obviously no research why are they just they obviously just mixed up scotland with ireland the woman who can't do an irish accent is an irish she's like an estonian actress who moved to america who's putting on an irish accent when she's supposed to be scottish <laughs> it's like and there's just lots of moments like that and just scenes where apparently the film was shot in 11 days and Charlie Sheen did all of his scenes in six days. And yet it's still not like an hour and 45. So um, a film with, what's it called? It's got Amy Adams in it, I think. And it's like a rom-com thing. And it's an American production, but in it, they go on a road trip where they drive from Ireland to London. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, I know that one. Completely ignoring the actual geography of the fact there's there's sea in between these places. Yeah. <laughs> well, in wow. in um, American Werewolf in London, does it, I mean, they start off on the Yorkshire Moors and end up in London, don't they? In hospital. Yeah, guess taken to hospital. Imagine you got stabbed in Yorkshire and they said, "Right, we're going to take it to London." You're like, "I'm dead. I'm going to be dead by the time we get there." <laughs> I'm going to bleed to death in a special journey. wolf attack units that they have in London, aren't they? <laughs> um, and, and the last um, thing I want to say you were, is, if you were going to watch oh, an Albert P. and film, sorry, because I'm not that familiar with his work, which would you say to watch? I would say Doll Man. Doll Man. I because I just think it's got. I mean, it's just a dumb action movie. I mean, it's cheap as hell and it's bad, but it's got some amusing, like, shrinking scenes in it and stuff. So that's cool. Okay. I might watch that then. Captain America is almost worth it just for, like, sheer what the hell just happened value. And it has got Ronnie Cox and Ned Beatty in it. And Ronnie Cox does at one point, he gets locked in a prison and then boots the door open with his foot. So that's got to be right. <laughs> <laughs> with his unshoed foot. Uh, um, yeah, there are a few keepers, absolute keepers. Um, 
I would. I'm just looking at these. Is I'm looking at. There's a few I've seen like in back in the day, like Mean Guns, Crazy Six, and stuff. But I would say um, Cyborg with John Cole Van Damme. Mm. That's the one that I watched the most when I was a kid. But yeah, I'm now trying to branch out. Is that the one that used the sets from Masters of the Masters Universe? Of the Universe yeah. Yeah, the, the failed Masters of the Universe sequel. They just said, oh, make a film, Albert. Love, go on off your trot. And he did. He did. Um, so, yeah. And the other thing is just, uh, I watched a Chuck Norris film called Breaker Breaker, and it just tickled me because there's a scene in that film where he's walking up some steps and someone's coming down and he punches him in the balls so hard that they black out and he puts them in a bin. <laughs> he just hits him and the guy just collapses over his shoulder like as if he's died. It's quite realistic, a... probably. Yeah. yeah, it would be realistic. Is if, if he, what would be realistic, Laszlo, is if he punched him in the nuts and the guy sank to his knees and went, "Hang on, hang on, I'm gonna see if it goes into my stomach." <laughs> and then he went and he goes, "Yeah, I feel sick now, actually." And then Chuck pats him on the shoulder and carries on. Chuck, he cannot act in that film, but he's still better than his son Mike Norris. So Laszlo. It is the end of the show. Um, I'll, we've got a few here that I want to talk about next time. But what? Uh, thank you for joining us. And have you decided on an Arkansas? Oh shit! Yeah, <laughs> that has slipped my mind. Uh, well, all you got to do is think about actors in a film we've mentioned today. Yeah, trying to make them so from different generations is always good laugh. Yeah, yeah, okay. and, and one male and one female. Well, you can do what you want. I I used to do that, but um, yeah, it's just whatever you fancy, really. Okay. Um, okay, let's go with Matt Smith because he was the, one of the only entertaining things about Morbius. Good. To oh wow, well, well, uh, Kim Basinger. Oh. Like it. And that's it. Uh, so yeah, well, um, any any questions or any um, if you want to talk about any uh, the the Kino Kingdom bingo, the Kino Kingo, anything, the Arkansas answers all to the men who talk at Outlook dot com. And thank you for joining us, Laszlo. Have, are we going to? Oh, have we got? I mean, we have we haven't gone through many because we a lot of it was taken up by a uh, Batman chat. But what are the films of the week? I mean, it can be a Batman film in all fairness. Well, I did watch Mask of the Phantasm quite recently so i will say mask of the phantasm i'll choose post-mortem just because of albert pian and it probably is it was entertaining it's it was not boring <laughs> oh god well I've, I've i'm just gonna go with x then yeah because it was rubbish <laughs> well it was excellent wasn't it yeah. <laughs> fantastic so, um, Okay. Yeah, love to all. And uh, love to you both. I'll see you next week. All my love. Farewell. Farewell. Bye bye.